if you were to say you shouldn't buy a house or a car that isn't more than X times your like monthly yeah. income. Yeah. And then I said, okay, now let's take two scenarios, 0% interest rate and 50% interest rate. I bet you whatever that, that number is times your income is probably different. Dougal's value investors play cash for cars. Come on. Like you think I financed? This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Gobble, gobble, my friend. Gobble, gobble. You know, I don't really like turkey. I'm vegetarian, so. Uh, see, there we go. Who are you gobbling for? You're gobbling, do you adopt live turkeys to save their lives? <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm importing like millions of turkeys. <laughs> no, you get one one a year. So you have like three <laughs> to five right now. I guess you just moved into your place next year. So is this your first turkey adoption? Backyard's going to start getting full in a few years. I like it. How you uh, how, good, man. Um, how about you? Uh, that's nice. Had some fam come into town and uh, it was a really good visit. Yeah, we did the family thing kind of first time in a while, uh, and it was tons of fun. Great to see those folks. So it's it doesn't feel back to normal, but it felt better than last year. Let's put it that way. Last year was like a whole thing. If you remember, we went on this road trip last year, right after the election last year. Like we we were heading out, drove across the country, and went all the way to the East Coast and and down. It was like and. It was the whole like hand sanitizer dispensers all across yeah, the car yeah. and like you know you're like where rubbing hand sanitizer get... <laughs> through your hair and stuff at it's that everything. point. There was so much fear. Yeah. And on the road trip, whenever 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 there was the need to go to the bathroom, it was like this game of Frogger. <laughs> right? I'd be like, there's a human being like then like run. yeah, very different. Still still not back to normal at all, but you know. But it's different. Times have changed, man. You, so I went on a road trip yesterday. <laughs> okay. When does when does something constitute a road trip if it was just yesterday? Well, I mean, let's talk about it. So you want some really bad jokes? How does a value investor buy a car? I won't say anything nice, so you just got to go. I mean, they don't is what happened. But <laughs> my car <laughs> officially died. Our, our family car oh, officially no. died this week. I remember, I feel like this is a couple of months ago. You're like, hey, uh, I might buy a car today. And I think the way a momentum investor buys a car is you stroll down to the lot, you pick out the prettiest, fanciest, price be damned. You want the price to be going up, right? It's like, exactly. You're like, yep. hey, actually, could you charge me $2,000 more for this car? Is that how yep. it works, Dougals? Exactly. I want the price of the car to my earnings ratio to be at least 100 <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i uh how a value investor buys a car if you actually have to buy one because i prolonged it for at least two years is uh you s- scour nationwide cars.com for used <laughs> terrible um ugly cars and then uh i flew a couple states away yesterday morning on frontier which is oh man that's so bad this is a true story and this is a true story yeah Hopped in, hopped in a car, 
bought a car at the dealership, drove the thing home tomorrow or yesterday. And <laughs> and here we sit. Everything's we're good. I, <laughs> oh yes, our experiences were <laughs> like a hundred percent different. <laughs> Don't aren't you so happy you're not me? Like, isn't this just <laughs> such a good thing? <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. I love it. So well, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I survived. All is well. The family's happy. What more can you ask for? That that story is priceless. I do appreciate it. <laughs> All right. What's up on the investing front? I I'm gonna I'm gonna dip into the fishbowl to pull out a name that has come up on this podcast many many times and talk some Kathy Wood. Look, before I even get into this, I want to say I wish everyone the best, and actually I wish Kathy Wood and Ark Invest the best as well. And also. I continue to worry about Miss Wood. So over the past few weeks, but especially this week, they're like, I felt like every time I turned uh, the page, which is really scrolling on my phone, I would see her name come up and her saying something else that just made me go like, I I, I wanted to figure out where she was, fly to her and (laughs) give her a big hug and like some advice. There was one, I'll throw a couple things out there. So one is she's talking about, and this is benign on its own. She's talking about how ARC funds is going to quadruple over the next few years. Yeah, and we, everyone should say that. Like, that's wonderful. That's great. The way that, that she's trying to do this is she's testing what she's calling ARC on steroids. And what that is, is she's testing it in, internally. So this isn't available apparently right now, fairly from what she said. It's not available to those that are buying her funds, but just to employees right now while they test. But she's shorting some stocks that are part of the traditional like benchmark funds that she's calling value traps. These stocks are value traps. And what that's, yeah, that's your world. Love it. You're yeah. fist bumping over there. Yeah, what, I am. What this effectively does is it's her doubling down on her holdings. So if she's, I'm, I'm going to go to the extreme. So if she's saying I'm buying these true innovator stocks and I'm shorting the non-innovator stocks. Yep. Dot, 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 ellipses. <laughs> like, all right. So can I, can I read a quote and then I want to get your reaction? Yes. We think the benchmarks are where the big risks are long-term because they are filling up with value traps. Those companies that have done very well historically, but are going to be disintermediated and disrupted by the massive amount of innovation that's taking place. Comment. I mean, so I saw this quote and who the benchmarks are filling up with, I, I guess I haven't done a deep dive on what benchmark she's talking about. So is she talking about market cap weighted S&P 500 type funds, Dougals? Let me it's just unclear. do a sanity check here. I mean, okay, so big caveat, assuming she's talking about market cap weighted funds. What you're filling up with is the Teslas of the world and the Microsofts of the world and the Apples of the world that are all like the top five companies in those benchmarks in the S&P 500 co- make up what, 25% of the total market cap? So- yeah. It can't be those. That, that's why like, it, it can't be those. Well, so maybe she's talking about the Russell 1000 or the Russell 3000 or something. But it's just a, it's, it's a really bizarre thing. If your hypothesis is, oh, disruptors rule the world and the new technology will kill the legacy technology, then why do you need ARC on steroids? Like you're, if that actually happens, you're going to win and you're going to win many times over and your performance is going to be better than everything else. These so-called value traps, uh, I'd love to know her internal definition of that, but that is the world I play in. And really what that means 
again, I don't know her specific definition or her specific screen. Like a value trap sucks sometimes because you might lose twenty percent of your investment. But the way I buy deep value, like you basically can't go to zero. So shorting those investments is a really dumb idea in my opinion um and sorry not a really dumb idea i want to be as kind as possible i just don't get it I, this this all does not make sense to me um her performance not this year but last year was spectacular it, this goes back to the i you see people get do really well and get really wealthy and then they seem to not be able to turn off that desire for more like is she trying to squeeze a, th a few more pennies out of it I don't know. It's it's felt like I've said this before. It's it's felt more like desperation than anything else to me. And I'm not sure the watching the videos um, of her saying these things, she doesn't look or sound desperate, but like the the actions feel desperate. Like you're trying to cling to to something, and it could be um, maybe desperation is the wrong word, but like the you're viewed as this innovative person. So you always have to do the innovative thing, right? It's yeah. like a, like clinging to something. Um, but the, uh, one of the hosts of CNBC, uh, Becky quick pointed out more or less what I said before. Doesn't it seem like you're kind of just <laughs> overextending yourself, you know, into, into this, this world. And, uh, and Kathy Wood's response, I found to be particularly interesting. Um, and just, for clarity, interesting here means troubling. Um, the, her response was, my firm always has a long-term view. We at least have a five-year view. And so within a five-year view, short-term volatility is to be expected. And, uh, uh, okay, there are two things. Uh, she, okay, go before I rant. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know about many things. There are two things that I have more knowledge of than than the rest of the world that I like that I don't have knowledge of. Those two things are one, startups. Yeah. And two, public market investing. Like I I know more about those than I know about other stuff. And to me, ARC, it's about seven years old, is I would look at it as a well-funded startup. That that's what ARC is currently. Mm -hmm. In startups, you have to make it to five years, like like two-year review. If you don't make it there, then who cares what your view was? And in my opinion, she's setting herself up in a way that makes that less and less plausible. Like it seems more likely that she will hit the the quote unquote death line, which in ETF world is a inflow outflow yeah. problem, effectively. Um, yeah. And in investing, like it's it's just it's very similar to that. Like we we've discussed it with between ourselves. We talked about this with William Green earlier. Like you have to have a seat at the table in order for anything to come true. And so as I'm listening to her, she, her views, her macro views might be very right. Like there's a possibility, meaning that it, what, what I mean is like in a decade is like the, the technology behind like CRISPR and genetics. Is that mm -hmm. going to win the day? Yeah, that could be true. Is yeah. it true that electric vehicles right, are going to be the future and like that's going to win and that the like the macro innovative ideas that she has like she might be right that in a decade those could be dominant and her business might not be around like yeah. both of those things can very well be true she might be right but bankrupt well and that happens a lot listen a lot of companies are 10 or 20 years too early 
like it, her hypothesis might be 10 years too early in a way but listen i don't like you said earlier we're not trying to uh throw shade and we wish her all the best when someone says my firm has a long-term view always at least five years out and they make daily trades i'm just gonna call i don't know i mean that's not a long-term view and daily daily trades that like are betting the opposite of what they did the day before yeah, like, like she'll be, she'll like pick up a bunch of Tesla, then she'll sell a bunch of Tesla. It's like you're thinking five years out, and you had to sell shares within 24 hours of each other. That makes no sense. I think of her as just a marketing machine. I mean, there's a a random distribution of outcomes, and I think luck is involved in all investment decisions. I think she had a good bit of luck. I'm not like not saying there's not any skill there, but I think it's mostly luck driven and I think mean reversion will happen and I don't know when that will happen for her. But hey, that's fine. I I'm excited because there's a long running joke on the show about the ETF that shorts ARC funds. It's called Sark. And I own that like basically as a joke. It's like a hundred bucks in my portfolio. And I think it's hilarious to watch. And I love that hearing that she's shorting value traps or what she thinks is value traps because that's going to improve my returns and my joke holding it's currently up it's been around for like three weeks it's currently up 13 percent. so her funds performing awesome let me tell you i wish her the best like i really i i genuinely do because uh there aren't they're also uh, one she's a human being always wish human beings the best second is there are not many women in this game True. Very it'd true. Be great for her to, to stick around and dominate. And when I hear things like this, right. And, and also there's a danger in uh, one of the things that she's saying is she, she's having like net hardcore net outflows from her fund uh-huh. this year, like since April, it's been more people are selling than buying. Uh, and what she's saying is she feels bad for these folks or she's scared. I think actually more for, for the, for the people that, aren't buying this tremendous opportunity. And that's the kind of rhetoric that we, when we're in a position of power, there's a position of responsibility. And like you said, she's a marketing machine and people listen. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and she might be right. She, and she makes headlines. It's dangerous. Well, no. Uh, so the thing that's fun about this is the show, our show has taken a longstanding position that more people understanding and investing in, buying a share of a company is going to be a good thing long term right and she her marketing machine is encouraging more people to dig in and understand equities and i think that's a good thing the other fun thing is her investment style is never going to work for me for my temperament but it's not mutually exclusive like she can be wildly successful and i could be wildly successful i don't i want to place a bet on her we being wildly successful but it's possible and i certainly don't wish her ill will it's interesting yeah. it's fun to yeah. talk about but she's something man she, she is something she's, she's something. really something i'm gonna you mind if I, i'm gonna grab on to one thing that you uh that you said yeah if you don't mind reach into the fishbowl again and go to this uh, morgan housel who we recently brought up too from a different article i like this one too uh he wrote this post experts from a world that no longer exists and the thing I'm going to grab onto is when you were saying like companies can be ripe at 20 years early. Uh, and some of the examples that Morgan gave in this were like pets.com back in the late nineties, massive failure, but like Chewy seems to be working now. Yep. Webvan, 
right back in the late 1990s. Huge failure, but Instacart seems to be working now, right? I'm just going to read the first sentence to start of the post because I think it sums up kind of what the post is overall. The The biggest risk to an evolving system is that you become bogged down by experts from a world that no longer exists. Like that's kind of the point. He's saying that expertise, you hold on to this expertise. If the world changes, but your expertise stays the same, then you haven't adapted to the world. So I liked this article and I like almost everything Morgan does. What I, I got hung up on this article uh, is, is those two things. One, that you can be too early. But another, I gave you a quote, I think last week from Benjamin Graham saying, uh, effectively, don't buy stocks over. Um, a 20 p well morgan says almost the exact opposite here and he's he's clearly channeling ben graham and i <laughs> disagree with his take um and towards the end he says don't buy in stocks over a p ratio of 20 was a good lesson to learn when the uh from the 1970s when interest rates are seven percent but today is irrelevant today he says probably at a philosophical lesson lesson yes but in practical terms probably not i just wholeheartedly disagree with that take and you i'd say 95 percent of everything morgan writes i agree with but um i'm not on board with that takeaway well, not at all here's the here's the question i have for you why 20 no and i don't mean i don't mean i it could be 22 it could be it, it could be 25 for all i care yeah I, i'm not saying that it has to be that rigid but uh, historically, people who buy expensive stocks lose a lot more than they win. And there's a really good chart going around Dougal's right now. This is, I'll switch gears from talking about PE ratio to price to sales ratio. And it's total market cap of companies with price to sales over 20. And there's a massive spike right now. It's currently like $4 trillion. Usually that value sits around $0 in terms of market cap with companies with a price to sales ratio greater than 20. And the only other time there's a big spike is basically the dot-com crash, you know, like 99, 2000. So I don't know, buying buying expensive companies just doesn't work. And if I had one uh, hard and fast rule, I wouldn't necessarily put a specific number on it, but I'd say don't buy expensive stocks. I I feel like if you were talking to Morgan, that you would probably both agree on that. Yeah, true. But I, I think Morgan's point here specifically was the number. Like you, you can't say that there's a number. It's kind of like if you say, let's take the, and this this also, what I'm about to say might, might ring, <laughs> ring false, or, depending on your view. But uh, if you were to say you shouldn't buy a house or a car, whatever it is, that isn't more than, X times your like monthly yeah. income. Yeah. And then I said, okay, now let's take two scenarios, 0% interest rate and 50% interest rate. I bet you whatever that, that number is times your income is probably different. Dougal's value investors play cash for cars. Come on. Like you think I financed? Are those your signs on, around Dougals. the city? Come on. What? There's <laughs> the signs? Say, we'll give you cash for your car with like a K? <laughs> No, actually, so this is really interesting. Uh, sorry to talk personal again, but yeah, I because I bought a car over state lines, I did actually sign the papers on a loan that I will pay off instantaneously because it's just easier than bringing a check. Anyway, long story short, but it's so crazy because the iSeries bonds that we mentioned that I know a lot of listeners have taken up paying 7% is significantly more than the interest rate I signed. So 
theoretically, there's some interest rate arbitrage available to me that is probably more of a hassle than it's worth to to make a few bucks. But it's just a funny time to be alive, Deagles, right? Yeah. Because where when's the last time in our life, and I, I don't know if there is one, where you could easily get a risk-free return of 7% and you could finance money in the 3 to 4% range very easily. Like, it's a, it's a, just a bizarre time. But still to that same point, though, right? The interest rate matters. That, that's what... <laughs> So Dougal's that, wins. That's but that's what that's what Morgan's saying here. Is he saying added like the interest rate matters as to what the absolute value is? So uh, completely, I, yeah. I, I get your point completely. though. It's expensive. Like if you if you're in the habit of overpaying for things, it is most likely that that overpayment will come to roost at some point. Like that. It, well, that also okay. Makes sense. So we love investor psychology. That's one of the things we talk about almost every episode. The the point I love the way you're framing this. The, the point I'm making is that my, uh, the way my brain processes information is sometimes it's easier to have a hard and fast and somewhat rigid rule than to be like, oh, you know what? Interest rates are here, so I'm comfortable paying a 22 PE and then having that go by for three years and getting comfortable paying higher and then sneaking up to a 25. And then all of a sudden, my investment fight. Uh, philosophy has evolved in a way where I am frequently buying like things that are more expensive than I should be. Does that make any sense? There's like this moving the goalposts that can happen over a long period of time where sometimes I think for your average know-nothing investor, as um, Buffett would call them, you you might want a somewhat rigid guardrail. Um, I think it will save you money in the long term. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And matching to psychology, it makes there because the, the moving goal post could just move forever. And next thing you know, you're like, you shouldn't buy any stocks with a PE over 150. You go, what what happened? <laughs> right? Like, how did how did I go from 20 to 150? Um, yeah, so I get that. There's well, only- that's the only way we get to environments today, right? Because yeah. whoever whoever bought Tesla at 200 bucks a share was probably like, oh, it feels a little expensive. But then when it went to 400, they're like, you know what? There's tons of potential here. I'm fine at 400 bucks a share. Now those same people are buying Tesla at a thousand bucks a share because I think they have to have moved their goalposts. Yeah, There's it's, no it's other either, explanation. It's either uh, not over 20 or who cares? PE doesn't matter. Like seem to be the two, like the two worlds <laughs> that exist. Uh, one, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna drop uh, one other thing from this post. So earlier this year, I think I mentioned I read uh, Henry Ford's book, um, My Life, My Work, um, and Morgan brings that book up in here. And I'm going to drop a quote that Henry Ford says that's related to this, to this topic. I'm not particularly anxious for the men to remember what someone else has tried to do in the past, for then we might quickly accumulate far too many things that could not be done. And what Henry Ford's talking about is he had a tendency to basically to test a whole bunch of stuff. Like he would test a lot of things, but not record the tests. Like they would just learn from the test and then keep going. And so he, he's saying here, like the reason for that is because he doesn't want to end up with this inventory of things that just don't work. And my takeaway from that is that it's, it's far more important to understand the why something didn't work than specifically the what. I think the what is important for the context of how you got to the why. But it, like if you, if you go back to the pets.com or web van, there were probably many, many intricacies and nuances as to why they didn't work, but you could say the infrastructure for the internet doesn't exist today or the yep. adoption of the internet doesn't exist today. And it's more important to say not delivery of goods does not work like via the web, 
but rather to say we would need to have uh, the web be more ubiquitous in order for this to be able to work. I, I think that those those two things are really important, but having the context of the what's important to understand the why. Yeah, so that really resonates with me. Um, I loved, I, I think it was in that article, but it might've been in another place when you talk Henry Ford is he also kind of said he wanted to learn and improve the manufacturing technique, but he, he didn't want to your point, like this list of these things don't work just for the perception of the negative connotation that comes with that. But then he also wanted his employees to be able to continue to tinker. So like he didn't want to say this is the right way. He wanted to give them the freedom to, uh, if they think there's a way to improve the process. And even if that's something they tried three years ago, maybe now to your point that technology has evolved or, or something else, it, it just changes the mindset of folks and it feels more like a partnership. And then there's always room for improvement in the manufacturing process. Word. Yeah. And then, so on pets.com, chew.com, everything else, like pets.com became the poster child for the dot-com bubble. And I'll bet you that that lingering history uh, made it harder initially for Chewy to get to like raise money, but it probably also in it, like Chewy is a good business, it seems. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, that could be right. I think it's probably one of two scenarios. There are likely more, but yeah. I could see a world where someone that invested in pets.com back in the late nineties has had that in their mind and they they could still be like, this would work and would be more than happy to give the money to try it again at the right time. Or I could see someone that either got burned back then or has the, the stories of it being much more reticent to, to give the money. I could, I could actually see it going either way. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I read about Reed Hastings this week, and um, I don't know if this is true or not, but as the story goes, when he was first founding Netflix, or very early in the game, when he's still shipping DVDs in the mail, he's ready to have the streaming experience like that's that was the end goal very early on and so they tried to build the infrastructure and realized that bandwidth just wasn't there where it needed to be but yeah. they were able to run some calculations to say like you know based on this adoption and this moore's law type um growth in band broadband you know like we might be two years out and then they'd recalibrate at that time and they recalibrate and eventually when the technology was in place they were like all right where it go on streaming. That's how you do it. It's it's not easy though. To see it's something that far in the future yeah. and then have a business that actually makes money or has the potential to make money in the meantime and then still keep that as your yeah. true north star is really tough. <laughs> that is that's that's quite an understatement. Yeah, you're right. That that's really, really hard. What's what's in your fishbowl? Do you know Solana? Um it's like the number yeah. six crypto. Um, mm -hmm. I did a little bit of a deep dive on that this week, just out of interest, and I, I'm really fascinated with it. What do you know about it? Not much. Like I've read a headline here or there. I think I've heard a snippet from a podcast, but like nothing, nothing really. I mean, I wouldn't. I'm I'm far from an expert, but the way I did a podcast and a little reading, and the way it's being pitched as, um, you know, like if Bitcoin maximizes security. Um, with slow transaction times and then ethereum still keeps a heavy focus on security but allows 
you know, smart contracts and everything to build on top. So Ethereum's like a potential finance ecosystem with security as a, a key measure. Solana is effectively Ethereum with its primary focus on speed, but obviously still feels secure. And, and there's been no security concerns at this point. What's so interesting about that is Solana claims to be able to increase transaction times as computing power grows, which means it like self-evolves in a way where it should always be, according to the bulls, right? It should always be the fastest uh, decentralized finance platform. And if that's the case, it, you can have really interesting conversations about what that may enable in the future. I don't get into this as much as you do. And then I neg it more than, more than you do. Yeah. But uh, I continue to be fascinated by the, by the tech that's behind like these. There, there's, there's like, there's something there. And I'm wondering uh, if it's going to be even use cases that we have no contemplation of that end up being what, uh, what takes some of these things mainstream. Yeah, I mean, this is a it, just an interesting case, and and we state this all the time, guys. But this is by no means an investment recommendation or it, anything related to investment advice. the The tech piece is the thing that got me really thinking this week as it relates to Solana, because if the claims are true, that's one of the most exciting technologies around. Because I think the way it's worked for people that get into crypto is you understand the fundamental use case of Bitcoin, then you understand the limitations of Bitcoin, then you start to play around with Ethereum and the potential possibilities that that world opens up. And if you trade Ethereum at all, you quickly realize that the gas fees and transaction costs are ridiculous because demand is outstripping supply and has been for at least the last six months to a year. So Solana is trying to fix that. I don't know. It just really has me thinking on the tech side, like you're saying. The thing I still can't figure out, well, it's, I, one, I don't put too much effort in trying to figure it out. So maybe that, that would be helpful. Yeah. But something I still can't figure out is, is it the coins that are going to matter in the end? I, is like a, in investing in the company behind, if, you know, if feasible, does that matter more because it is about like the tech or the protocol? Or is that inextricably linked with the coin? Like I, like, I can't quite figure that out. Yeah, I think it's unclear. I do feel like in most cases, the coin becomes uh, the proxy for the equity holding in a normal company. And in a lot of cases, this tech is approximating a company where the demand for that technology will ultimately set the price of the coin. But yeah, we've debated this in circles before, and I don't think there's a... 100% clear answer, but that's what, that's what they're trying to do. And that's how the initial coin offering, if it's a reputable coin can be very similar to a IPO in the equity space, but much earlier in the game, typically. Thanks for always dropping knowledge there where I, I, I cannot. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating stuff worth researching if you're into that. All right. Can we, uh, I want to hit on fragility given the, we've talked about this so much. I know, but when these charts come out, it's just fascinating. I'm going to throw out two things here around fragility. Uh, and we, we, uh, had the worst black Friday 
since 1931 recently. And like one day doesn't matter. And especially like Black Friday, it's just a random day, effectively. Yeah. That doesn't matter. Um, the only reason why you could say it's maybe not the only, but a, a reason why you could say that it's not random is because it's a shortened day. It's low, uh, low volume typically. And so there's more volatility that can happen on that day typically, but we can put that aside. It's like, a, it's basically a random day. And so one random bad day does not a market make. However, with that is a reminder, potential reminder around the fragility that does exist in the market right now. And so two things, one is I saw this week that stock funds have taken in more money in 2021 yeah. than the previous 19 years combined. So $900 billion have gone into, I think this is US too, uh, US equities this year. And predominantly that's ETFs. What? Like the things that I, that wouldn't have made my eyeballs pop are things like this was a, a record year for buying stocks. Like I'd go, okay, yeah, sure. But 19 years, <laughs> like that is, I don't even know what to do with that. I can't explain this one. You sent me the chart. This is, we're referencing Yahoo Finance here. Came out the 25th of November. And I, I've thought about it all week. I really can't explain this significant inflow into equities. I mean, because you say 19 years, uh, they're saying $1.1 trillion is the rolling 12-month flows into equities, right? The previous peak is like $400 billion. I mean, this is, yeah, it's yeah. just, it's crazy. I don't have an explanation for this at all. Now let's, uh, let's take the intersectionality of that fact with margin debt continues to be at, at its highest. And I, I was trying to figure out um, the, the detail behind this other chart that I saw. Like I was trying to find the actual report so I could get the definitions of these things, but we'll have to take it at face value because I couldn't find it. So margin debt, highest, and free cash balances, lowest Yeah, right now, both yep. by far. And so, so you have 900, I'm gonna just go to the extreme. You have $900 billion this year or rolling 12 months, as you said, $1.1 trillion yep. that have gone in. People ain't got no money, apparently, <laughs> right? At least the people investing. Um, <laughs> like, and so this is money that they do not have that they're paying low interest on today. It's brilliant at, the, at that fundamental level. If you just said that, that's fundamental. If you believe in what our good friend that we discussed earlier, Kathy Wood, believes in, then maybe it's also brilliant, right? You're getting, you're basically, you're going to get, what she make last year? 152%? You're going to get 152% on 2%? Psh, do it all day. And yeah, man, <laughs> so many yeah, ellipses just, this episode. I just can't get on board with that. It, that's great until you go bankrupt. I mean, yeah, you're trying to stay in the game. This is the time where you should have heightened awareness to make sure you stay in the game for the next few years or few decades. Like, yeah, I, there, don't, I really don't get it. There's so much potentially that that could be going well from a cash perspective for folks. And we are wasting it. We're just like betting the farm when you don't have a farm. You bet um, someone else's farm. <laughs> hey, but that that person, well, that government is willing to give you that farm at a very affordable uh rate i think that's that's really what's happening i mean there's just so much cash out there that feels free did i tell you about the crypto donations and how they're just been flying through the roof so 
I forget which foundation, uh, just switched over to accepting crypto donations. And uh, the folks like JP Morgan and everyone is developing like a philanthropic arm for crypto. And one of the guys interviewed was like, there's just an insane amount of generosity there. Well, what's happened is a lot of those people have made like a thousand percent return. And now because it feels like free money, they're giving it away, which props to them. That's awesome. I, I think there's just a lot of that going on where people feel like this is monopoly money rather than real money. How much of, of that giving do you know is from, I'll call it like everyday retail folks versus larger holdings? Um, I don't know, but it, there was there was more of a retail component to it, um, yeah. I believe. So one one of the reasons I uh, I ask is, are you familiar with donor advised funds? No. So a donor advised fund or DAF DAF. I don't know if people actually call it a DAF, but DAF Punk. But what what a donor advised fund is is you can you can set one up through many of the brokerage houses, etc. And what you can put either assets or cash into it. There's restrictions on exactly what you can put in, but you can you can put that into it. And let's say that you're going to have a large tax year. Yeah. Or you just, for whatever reason, you don't want to pay your taxes or like you want to have less taxes that year. You can put money into a donor advised fund or assets into a donor advised fund. It will then appreciate without you like tax free, but then you can technically it's like you can request or recommend what charity they give it to yes. over any period of time. But they're like, they're, whatever organization you gave it to are the ones that decide, but you take the tax write off immediately. So the reason I asked is because I wasn't sure if it, it could, if it was like larger investors, you could say, I've made a thousand percent in crypto here. And if your donor advised fund allows for it, you could transfer some of that crypto into the donor advised fund, take that tax write off today, but actually give the money away over time um, to actual yes. charities. And I was just curious as to how no, much ver- that might Very be well to- said. That is... Um... That is a large component of what's going on. I think I think it's called something different than a donor advised fund in the crypto space. Uh, but sorry, that I'm rusty on that article because it's like three weeks since I've read it. But yeah, you nailed it. There's a large component of that happening to avoid tax consequences, but also to provide some charity. I, I've got one thing, one more thing we can chat about, and then uh, two nerd recommendations. Yes, I'm excited. Um, all right, so the one more thing. We brought up Zillow maybe last week or the week before and discussed how their uh, iBuying arm, they were shutting down. They were taking like a, hundreds of million dollars in losses. They had to lay off, unfortunately, a bunch of their, their staff. So we talked about that. There was this, uh, pardon my French or whatever here for, for those out there. I don't even know if this is French. Maybe it's Dutch. <laughs> but there's this post I came across on stevenbuccini.com. That Zillow did not have metallic balls is the title of it. That is Dutch. And You're right. That's Dutch. Okay. Yeah, more Dutch. So this article, what it's saying is that Zillow, to sum it up, Zillow did not lose enough money to be successful in this space, which is a, at face value, a counterintuitive take on, at least from Zillow's standpoint, Zillow is saying we lost too much money to be able to stay in this space. Yeah. And so throughout this post, they go back and forth and quote Zillow. And then they'll quote Max Levchin, who's the CEO of of a firm, the buy now, pay later company, and was also a co-founder back in the day of PayPal. So he's been in the the payment space um, for a bit. And what these quotes kind of come out and say is 
Max will, will always come out and say some version of, in order to get a quote unquote algorithm like this working, to get the machine learning behind the algorithm working, you have to take external data, run your algorithms against external data, then you have your own internal data that comes from that. And then you continue to adjust over time and it takes a whole lot of investment to get to the place where it can work. And so that, that's where the, the quote unquote metallic balls come from is because you're gonna lose a lot of money before it's even useful. And so the idea that you lose too much money and therefore have to get out, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a dangerous game to play, right? But, but I thought that that was really fascinating to take two different views kind of on the same type of issue. I feel like Kathy Wood is probably excited to hear in this breakdown. She's like, hey, a company that could lose more money? That sounds like a great investment for me. <laughs> I want a P I mean, ratio that is NA. I like this perspective, but that's kind of the take. And uh, as a public company, it's really hard to just go out to your shareholders and be like, you know what? We're losing money now. We will lose money in the future, and we're gonna lose more money than than you're ever comfortable with because the upside is great here. It happens. There's people that are really good at telling those stories. You can talk about the growth at Amazon.com or others that made really strategic long-term bets and weren't able to. I mean, Amazon wasn't profitable until just recently, and now they they seem to be printing money. But this isn't the type of business or business strategy that excites me. I think uh, I don't have metallic balls is what I'm trying to say, Dougal. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to read a couple of the quotes, like the, the contrast so that yeah. folks can get an idea. So Rich Barton, Zillow CEO, this is on the Q4 earnings call. We set unit economic targets that required us to stay within plus or minus 200 basis points and break even. So that's the got to make a certain amount of money. Now let's go to Max Levchin. Of course, it's very hard to build models from your own data if you don't have a lot of data. And the only way to get a lot of data is to lose a bunch of money. Those are two fundamental views, like fundamentally different views. And I, I just think, I think it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, but they, they also, they're in very different places in their organization's life. So Affirm also now public, mm -hmm. right? Um, but have been public for, I think it was, what, December? So yeah, this year, almost yeah. a year, not even quite a year, they've been public. Uh, and a firm's been around for, let's call it like about a decade. Zillow is an, an older organization, still newer relative to, you know, like a, some of the old real estate firms, but they're, they're in different places and also have fundamentally different like core strengths and core capability sets and core competencies. And so that's also where firms has like built from the beginning around data. They are a, like a, a risk actuarial organization. Zillow was built off of being a like an advertising platform for real estate agents. So they're just they're different companies. And so I my takeaway isn't even necessarily that that Zillow is doing the wrong thing. You have to keep investing. It might be actually this is the wrong type of business given your core competencies for you to be in right now. And maybe you should be in this business, but you have to figure out how to get your the rest of your company ready for it, maybe, or maybe you shouldn't be in it. Whereas Max Lefshin, his whole business was built around doing this stuff. So so it's, it's different there. It's not black and white. I mean, so where I push back with with the parallel, Affirm and Max Levchin, you know, they might be financing a Peloton bike. It's not a half a million dollar home. Like that he should be able to get a lot more data because the risk that comes with each purchase decision is smaller. And because of that, I think 
the yeah, it's much higher volume. So if we're talking machine learning, like uh, it's more fit for that space because there's just this, it's so much higher volume. I think I agree with your point that it, Zillow history is written here in my eyes. That doesn't mean it might mean that Zillow was 20 years early, but they already had $500 million in losses and they only were in the space, what, three, four years. So they made a bad bet. Uh, their technology wasn't what it needed to be. I don't know that they needed to lose more money and it would, uh, I don't know that if they lost more money, it would have ended with a better outcome long-term. I think they were in the wrong place at the wrong time and it's poor strategy. I'll take that. I'll take that. Nerd, can I nerd recommendation time? Please do. Okay, nerdy things to read. Uh, so one is uh, Howard Marks' most recent investment letter. I particularly, it's about 16 pages long. Uh, and I particularly thought that the last two sections were most interesting. The second to last was around China, views on China. Um, so go read it. Don't have to talk it through right now. This one's called The Winds of Change. Ironically, he starts this off, this winds of change memo by talking about how not much changes. Um, it was like, <laughs> that's Howard. Yeah, not much changes, but some things is changing. Was the, if, uh, if Howard were JJ from Good Times, that's the way he would, he would state that. <laughs> and then, so that's one. So take a, take a read on that if you're interested. The other one, and now we're going to exponentially increase the nerddom uh, for this one. The other one is something that you sent over. Uh, to me, Skippy, which is a, it's a research paper that did one fascinating thing that resulted in a non-fascinating thing. So the fascinating thing is, and it's called, sorry, I'll start this off. It start, it's called the cross-section of stock returns before 1926 mm -hmm. and beyond. They put that in there as if like that was the tentilating <laughs> piece. Um, but the, the reason why 1926 is important is because there's this organization called the Center for Research and Security Prices, or CRISP, as it's known, that comes out of the University of Chicago. And they're known for having high quality investment data and stock prices. They, they go through, they clean it up, they'll correct things, et cetera, et cetera. Their data set starts with New York Stock Exchange data in December of 1925. And so that's why it's yep. 1926 and beyond is kind of like handled. Is, is what that's where is all that is. Chicago school like Markowitz and everyone else is using that data set typically. And exactly. that's like, I mean, pretty much there's um, there's global financial data as we talked about. There's another solid set of data starting in 1971, but yeah, that 1926 data set is like it has been the gold standard worldwide uh, for a long time. And so now they're saying uh, that they've gone and Put together a data set that's pre-1926 and so this is the fascinating thing that they did is from 1866 to to 1926 they've put together data sets that were taking the regional exchanges like the philadelphia exchange right new york stock exchange data and other exchanges that existed smaller exchanges that existed back then and put together stock data around it um they did some some cleaning up and whatnot of the data and so there's like another 60 years of stock data they looked at so it's like awesome so about, I'm, I'm exaggerating here, but I'm going to say 85% of this paper was them talking about how they put together all this data. And I was like, this seems like a lot of them <laughs> talking about that. It's because the results on the other side, like weren't very interesting. Um, and so when they, when they analyzed the data, it, they basically came back and said, 
all the trends that everyone has found that has to do with stocks, like how different factors, momentum, value, et cetera, how they impact after 1926 basically held true before 1926 too. But it's still great that we have a, like, there's a larger data set that, that might exist. And so I thought the putting of the data set was interesting. The results from it, not so much. But if you just, you know, want to nerd out, can't fall asleep one night, go ahead and read that paper. Are they going to, so did that come from CRISP as well? Or is that from another? No, it's, it's not from CRISP. Um, Are they going to try tie those data sets together? They, so in the, in the paper, they kind of did. So they, they looked at, when they were looking at trends, they looked at 1866 to 1926. 1926 to 2019 was the last crisp data that they had in there. And then they also looked at 1866 to 2019. So they, they tied it all together to see where the different trends go. But having read through this methodology, I can't see Chicago pulling in uh, this data. And so I think officially it probably never lives anywhere, but they did for the purposes of this paper. Awesome. That's all she wrote from me. So hit us up on Substack, Skippy and Dougals at Substack.com. Twitter at Skippy Dougals. Uh, we appreciate reviews on iTunes. That helps more people find the show. Uh, so please shoot us a review there. And uh, listener mail. We always appreciate that. Skippy Dougals at gmail.com. Thanks, guys. Thank you.